Well, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'd like to uh, read the first two verses and uh, focus our uh, thoughts on what we need to understand and what we should do in light of what the Bible teaches about our government and our civil authorities. So let me begin reading uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And as I'm reading uh, to you from the inspired Word of God, again, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now when we look at this passage, we see that the Apostle Paul is exhorting the church, Timothy who will teach the church, that they need to be praying for all men and specifically for our kings and civil rulers and authorities those in political office who rule in our government. He says we need to make entreaties, we need to make prayers, we need to make petitions with thanksgivings uh, for those who are in our government. That's part of the application of what he's specifically saying. The purpose and the reason for us to pray for our government authorities is so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now what does that imply? That implies that we have the freedom to live out our Christian lives and our Christian morals without being molested or without being persecuted by the state. That we have the freedom and the liberty to live out our Christian faith, to share our faith, to preach the gospel, to live according to biblical values without the government at all infringing on those liberties or freedoms. That's basically what this is implying. Um, So one of the major things in light of the 4th of July uh, upcoming on Thursday, uh, normally the Sunday before the 4th, I like to address uh, what the Bible says about various government issues or politics. Because let's face it, everything is fair game. If the Scriptures address it, I don't care if it's politics or whatever, we have a right to address it and understand it. And one of the major threats to our liberty and our freedom, our religious freedom and our liberties to live our life the way we so desire to live it, is socialism. Uh, It threatens our lives on many different fronts. It attacks our biblical principles of not only economic freedom, but also our religious freedom. And part of the reason, or the way that it does that, is that socialism basically replaces God in society. It rejects God's law and replaces it with man's law. That's what socialism does. And socialism and communism are basically cut out of the same cloth. It's just a matter of a minor degree and intensity and violence used to accomplish uh, the goals. Dr. Joseph Boot points out that statism, that is a society where government is basically in control of most everything, or socialism seeks to imitate divine providence by offering cradle-to-grave welfare. 
It replaces divine predestination with social planning. And we need no atonement from Christ when we have political reparations, payments, and the politics of guilt. And the growing new world order is our salvation. And judgment comes through the threats of environmental or social catastrophes. That's basically what socialism is. Now, within our government, the reason why I think it's important that we address that is because socialism is on the rise. Socialism is growing by leaps and bounds within every sector of our society, especially within our government. Uh, Within the Congressional Progressive Caucus, there are now 95 members of Congress that are part of the Progressive uh, Caucus. That's 40% of the entire Democrats in Congress. 40% are a part of the Progressive Caucus. The Congressional Progressive Caucus is in league with the Communist Party USA and the Democratic Socialists of America. They're all in bed together. And you can see within our own government how, how far-reaching the effects of socialism is even today. They've been doing working on this for many, many decades. Just to give you a heads up on some of the leading socialists uh, within our government, just a few of them that you might recognize. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We have Rashida Tlaib. And she, these two are dues-paying members of the Democratic Socialist Party. And then, of course, you have others like Ilhan Omar. You have... Coming at you, Bernie Sanders. You have Keith Ellison, of course. And you have Maxine Waters. And she's probably wondering, why have they not impeached 45 yet? So what is socialism? Because if we're going to understand what the Bible teaches, we need to understand what socialism means so we can evaluate it in light of the authority of God's Word. So what is socialism? Well, just a a basic dictionary definition says that socialism is a society in which the means of production, distribution, and exchange are owned or regulated by the community as a whole, i.e. by government, rather than private individuals. So basically the government owns the means of production, the factories, the businesses, the way it's distributed throughout the society, the way it's exchanged, including money, all that kind of stuff, is under the control of the government. Now, some of the platform of uh, the socialists in our country are to end private property, open borders, abolish ICE, Medicare for all, that is a single-payer, government-run health care, more free social welfare programs, environmental justice like the Green New Deal, redistribution of wealth so that the rich pay their fair share, their anti-capitalism, profit is evil, they're for free college, pay off all student loan debts, promote the LGBTQ uh, lifestyle and abortion, and they're globalists. Just to mention a few, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. Forbes magazine last year, uh, a writer, Jeffrey Dorfman, says that the Nordic countries, and let me back up by saying that many people say, well, you know, socialism 
is really not all that bad because there's a lot of success stories of socialist countries that are doing quite well. And so they appeal to, to the Nordic countries like Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Denmark. The problem with that is that those are not good examples of socialist countries. And you can find a number of articles about this online if you search it out. But this one article said the Nordic countries are not socialist, but more compassionate capitalism with a generous welfare state. Nordic countries practice mostly free market economics, which is contrary to socialism, paired with high taxes to pay for their generous government entitlement programs. These countries were successful economies thanks to capitalism before they built their welfare states. So some people appeal to, well, we want socialism like it is over in Sweden or Norway, and they think that those are socialist countries, but they're really not. They're more capitalist. They have high taxes and a high entitlement programs, but uh, they're not full socialist countries. Socialism has really never worked wherever it's been uh, tried throughout the country. But the danger is, this is the mentality that's coming into our nation. Uh, sadly, over 2 million young people but under the age of 30 voted for Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders in the 2016 presidential race. Over 2 million. They've infiltrated our higher education. They're reaching the minds of everyone because they come across as a very compassionate form of government. Yeah, we give away all this free stuff to everybody. And it sounds compassionate, but it just simply uh, will not work. So let's kind of break it down. I can't touch on all the uh, platform issues of socialism, but let's, let's touch on a few and evaluate them by the, by the Scriptures. One of the platform items of socialism is to end private ownership of business or any means of production, distribution, and exchange. In other words, you basically, they're committed to ending private property. And this is the first plank of the Communist Manifesto. And most of what socialism advances today, you can look up and find it right in line with the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. There's very little difference. Uh, so basically what they're, pro what they're proposing and, and working diligently to bring to pass is for the government to control basically all the means of production. And uh, they want basically to, they call themselves, some of them, the Democratic Socialists of America. They still will want to accomplish their goals through, the, through voting, but uh, basically they want the government to control these things. So land is either owned or controlled by government. And if it's not owned by the government, then it's controlled by the government through zoning laws and environmental concerns and property taxes. And some people, uh, naive believers, will say, well, the Bible teaches that because look what happens in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 5 when all the believers gave their land to the elders to redistribute the wealth to help out all the poor. Well, there's a huge difference between that and socialism because all that took place in the book of Acts was voluntary. It wasn't coerced. It wasn't forced. But socialism will use government to coerce and force this exchange of wealth. 
and the ownership of land. Not socialism at all. What's found? It's, a, it's an excessive form of love and sharing, but it's all voluntary in acts. So that in no way supports the idea that they were living by socialist uh, uh, values. Not at all. Well, what does the Bible say about private property? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that we have the right to private property. Socialism wants to end that right. The Bible clearly says you have that right. For example, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. That's the, that's the uh, Eighth Commandment. And that implies private property. Because if someone takes away what is yours, they are stealing it. Why is it stealing? Because you own it. It's yours. You have the right to it. And if someone by force takes it away from you or by stealth or whatever motive, that is stealing. So there's a commandment, thou shalt not steal. Proverbs 11 verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. In other words, all business transactions must be honest without cheating. You can't steal from one another. You can't, you know... Put your thumb on the scales to cheat your, whoever your customer is because you'd be stealing wealth from them if you do that. So again, we find that Proverbs certainly supports the right of private property ownership. Exodus chapter 20. You're not to covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, don't covet it to be tempted to go and take it from him. But why? Because that's stealing. And if it's wrong for an individual to steal the property of someone else, it's wrong for the government to steal the property of somebody else. That's why the Bible gives us that example of Naboth and his, and his vineyard that, that uh, King Ahab wanted. Well, Naboth wouldn't sell him the vineyard so he used violence and murder to actually Jezebel actually to uh, to take it from him that is sin that is that is breaking the commandment the government has no right to steal the private property of an individual so to end private ownership by whatever method socialism tries to bring to pass is absolutely contrary to the teaching of private ownership now, the Bible goes on and gives punishments for stealing. That's how serious it is. And restitution. If you steal something, then you have to pay it back three or four times. So very strict forms of, of uh, civil punishments if you break this law. There's also commandments about don't move or tamper with the property boundaries of your neighbor. Why? Because you're stealing land from them. And again, you see how the Bible protects private ownership of land and property in general. And then in the year of Jubilee, over 50 years, if you got into poverty and had to sell your land to someone, that land would automatically revert back to your ownership. So again, there's no way that government has the right to go in and take the land and hold it indefinitely. Uh, The Bible certainly does not endorse that at all. All these verses and more supports the biblical principle of private ownership of property, which is a foundation for the free market system and enterprise. That's capitalism. That's a foundation. 
because you own your property. You can start a business and you own that business and you can enjoy the profits that come from that business. And the government has no right to take that away from you. The Bible never says they can do that. When private property is abolished, like socialism would like to do, then government controls all economic activity which controls what you can buy, where you can live, what job you will have and train for, or where you go to school or how much you will earn. And human liberty at that point is, is destroyed. And we're basically made slaves of the government. Now the United Nations is huge into this. Agenda 21, if you've ever read about that, United Nations program is, is huge in trying to control and regulate the land that we live on, the water that we drink, the air that we breathe, where we can actually be located where we, when we live. And all of this is uh, uh, very much the program of the United Nations, and they've had a tremendous influence on most nations around the world. But ultimately, what they think is they're smarter than you are. The government knows better than you do. And you don't have the right to your liberty because you don't know how to use it. So the government's going to take all that control. And we're going to determine where you live and how you work and how much you can make and all your taxes and, and all this kind of stuff. And basically, we become like animals in a zoo. And they become the zookeeper. But by their zoning laws and all the regulations and all the, the, the stuff they bring in to control us, basically we're like a, an animal in a zoo. We're in a cage. And that's the ultimate philosophy of socialism because they're the smart ones and we're the dumb ones. And we shouldn't have this incredible blessing of liberty and freedom because we'll misuse it, we'll mistreat other people. So they're the ones in the know. So we need to give all that authority and power to the government and let them rule our lives. And that's what they want. But that is not what the Bible uh, says is uh, uh, pleasing to God, not, not in the least. Uh, by the way, just for your reference, there's a great book by Wayne Grudem called Politics According to the Bible. And this is an excellent book. A few things I disagree with him in the book, but it's a very thick book. It touches on about every issue you can think of. And if you want a good biblical um, assessment or evaluation of many of these uh, issues, I would uh, highly recommend this book. In this book, he says that socialism and its fullness, which is basically communism, is the most dehumanizing economic system ever invented by man. Because it robs you of your God-given liberties to choose and make choices in your life because the government is controlling all that. Basically, Vladimir Lenin, who is the father of communism, said, it is true that liberty is precious. So precious that it must be carefully rationed. And that's what communism and socialism wants to do. It wants to ration away your liberty and freedom and control you like you're an animal in a zoo. Well, let's move on. How about single-payer health care? Again, simply, you know, go from Genesis to Revelation. You'll never find anywhere where God endorses government controlling our health care. You just won't find it. I mean, in the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, the representatives of, of Israel's government, if you will, their religious aristocracy, the priest and the Levite, 
just walked by and the poor guy got very uh, deficient care, I would say. But an individual walked by who had a heart of compassion, an individual, a private person, the Good Samaritan, and he did a tremendous ministry in caring for for that uh, Jewish man who had been afflicted. Uh, So what the Bible endorses, basically, it doesn't ever give government the right to health care. Now, we need to be compassionate. I mean, we, I'm, I'm all for compassion, but the private sector can always do a better job of meeting needs in our society than government. And why is that? Because if the government controls something, there's no need for competition. And it's competition within a free enterprise system that, that challenges people to make a better product at a lower price because they want the business, they want the profit. There's a profit motivation, which is very healthy and good. But if you're government and you control it all, then there's no real motivation. You can move at your own speed, and then there's bureaucracy and all the red tape that gets involved. And inevitably, the quality of health care will go down and the cost will go up if government controls it. And that's what you see in the other countries like Britain or Canada, that has government-run health care. And again, the Bible never endorses that that's the best way for there to be health care provided for the citizens of a country. And we have a lot of work to, to, obviously, in our own nation in this regard. But the last one I would want to see in control of our health care is the government. And yet socialism, that's one of the great planks of Communist Manifesto and socialism, let the government control it. Because they can control it and they can say, well, you know, you're a little bit too old to receive this operation. You don't need to have that. Or, you know, you're too far gone. We don't need to really give you this expensive uh, medicine. And a good friend of ours is uh, uh, struggling with cancer and there's medicine that, uh, you know, the insurance companies uh, will not cover for her. A lot of, lot of problems, a lot of issues. It's a complicated deal, but I would much rather see private enterprise, the free, uh, the free market system come into play. I think they can do a far better job than giving it to government. The government is always going to uh, slow things down. Um, where am I? Uh, one of the, let me back up for a moment on the uh, on private ownership issue. Uh, I'm going to switch out because I want to say this before I forget it. But uh, when it comes to private ownership, where are we at here in America? You know, how much of your private property do you really own? Um, it's interesting. Do you own your house, for example? Well, if you rent it, you don't own it. If you've bought it and you have a mortgage on it, do you own it? Do you own your house? Well, just stop making your mortgage payments and tell me who owns a the house. They'll come and they'll repossess it. So you work real hard and you pay off all your mortgage and now you own your home free and clear. Do you own your house now? No. Stop paying your taxes. And you'll find out who really owns your house. It's the government. See, you can see how much inroads there's been in diminishing our right to private property because we really don't even own our homes. And again, back in the year 2000 now, uh, 2009, President Obama and the federal government started messing with the ownership and control of 
banks like Citigroup and Bank of America, Chrysler, General Motors. You remember all that. But the government was getting their, their little paws on the ownership and control of those businesses. So it, it's happening certainly within, within our own uh, country. And it's uh, continuing to increase. Well, let's, uh, when it talks about uh, single-payer health care, uh, Obamacare obviously was um, legislated as a law of the land, but uh, it was designed to fail. It wasn't yet full single-payer government-run health care, but Obamacare was a big step in that direction. But it was designed to fail. There was a lot of lies promoted and trying to sell it to the public, keep your doctor, you know, your your taxes, your health care bill would go down by $2,500, whatever. But it was designed to fail so that the issue would come up again. There'd still be all these problems so, they, so the socialists can push again for single-payer health care. And, you know, all of the uh, presidential candidates on the Democratic Party, basically that's what they want. Single-payer, government-run health care. So again, it's, uh, they have a lot of influence within our own country. How about uh, free public college? Pay off all the student loans. Uh, several issues. You know, the Bible, again, puts the responsibility in the hands of parents to train up and to educate their children. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moral issue. Is If the government steps in and provides free college for anybody who wants to go to it, what else should they pay for? Well, hey, why don't they pay for my car, too? Why don't they pay for my monthly utility bills? Why don't they pay for my home? I mean, where do you draw the line as to where the government will insert itself and start giving away freebies, and how do they pay for that? Where do all that money come from? Uh, so you, and, and the free education for college, there is a political uh, devious reason for that. They would love to have every young person go free to college because college and the universities today are basically, basically the incubators for the socialist, Marxist, communist ideology. So of course, if they can make it easy for every young person to go there, they want that because that way... They can influence them and turn them against the values of their parents, the beliefs of their parents, and indoctrinate their minds with all this socialist garbage. So yeah, let them all come free. I mean, there's a great motivation for them to do that. And this again is where the socialists want. They uh, vote Bernie to end student debt, universal free public college, and cancel student loan debt. And then my favorite, why do I support free college? It costs a pretty penny to earn a diploma in stupid. Now, I thought about taking that off, but I left it in there because, to, to be honest with you, some, she, she has an economics degree from, from college. And some of the things that she has said, you wonder, where in the world did she learn that? And I apologize if I'm offensive with my humor uh, I almost took it out, but my horns grew and I left it in. So, so I'm going to get free college. And the other guy says, well, I'm going to get the bill. And that's the problem. It sounds great. Free this, free that. But someone's got to pay for it. 
And one of the great quotes from uh, Margaret Thatcher, who is Prime Minister of England, says, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. Because you and I will pay for all those free things by higher taxes. And if they don't tax us by taking more money out of our pocket, they inflate our currency, which is another hidden tax which steals away the value of our money and we end up paying for it that way. So either way, we lose. But that's what socialism wants. Again, Lenin says, Give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. And he also said, destroy the family, you destroy the country. And that's true. Well, how about all the racial, economic, social, and climate justice that's being uh, pushed forward by the socialists within our own country? Well, on the one hand, we, we certainly believe in justice. We believe in fairness. Uh, because as Genesis tells us, God made man in His image. Every human being still has, though distorted by sin, a remnant of the image of God within them. And that gives them certainly higher value than animal life. And and so as Christians and Bible-believing Christians, we believe that all men should be treated fairly and justly. And James chapter 2 condemns any attitude of partiality or bigotry within the church. When it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not do that. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are not convict and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we should have a very compassionate heart towards our fellow man. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But to promote the racial, economic, social, climate justice that the socialists are doing is not exactly fair and it's not really just. What the Bible teaches is equity for all, fair, equal treatment for all, but not equality for all. And what we mean, what the Bible means by that is not everybody's made equal. Some have greater talents and abilities than others. Some have greater motivation than others to do their work. Uh, some people are more diligent in their work. Some are more lazy. Uh, some people have uh, uh, higher goals than others, and others are, are, are willing to live with, with much less. Some people use their money more wisely than others. Some people waste it. Some people save it or invest it. We're not equal. But what socialism it wants to make everybody equal, economically and socially equal, and that's unbiblical. You just can't do that. It won't ever work. But they use it as a scheme for the government to grow more powerful in controlling us. But what the Bible does affirm is equity for all. Everyone needs to be treated equally and fairly. The main, uh, for the sake of time, I don't, I, I'm not going to deal with all those other issues of social justice. But I do want to deal with this environmental justice because it's such a big issue today as well. We all remember Al Gore who came out, you know, a couple of decades ago with his uh, An Inconvenient Truth uh, video and book, The Crisis of uh, Global Warming. And in this book, basically he said that... Uh, Man is polluting the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. 
And that's causing the ice to melt in Antarctica and in Greenland. And eventually, that's going to cause a 20-foot increase in sea level worldwide. That's going to drown all the cities that are on the, the shoreline. And this, that, and the other. And it's a big scare tactic. That we need to, oh my goodness, we're, we're destroying ourselves. We need to give more money and, and control to the government to fix the problem or we're all going to be dead. And again, Cortez, you know, came out saying recently that uh, we have 12 years left before the world ends because we've so polluted our environment. Now, how's that for stupid from a college education? 12 more years and the world is going to end. And, that, and that's, this is kind of the Green New Deal that she's pushing. Well, back to, to the Al Gore, it's interesting that in Britain, a British court ruled that this book by Al Gore and his DVD series had so many distortions and serious errors that it could no longer be shown in British government schools without an accompanying list and refutation of all of its errors. And then you look at uh, all this other propaganda that's being pushed out there that global warming is, we're the culprits, we're the bad people, so we need to cut out all the CO2 and we need to uh, basically give the government the control to do carbon tax and all that kind of stuff and control us. A few facts about CO2, and I got this from a science textbook. CO2 is certainly one of the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. And the greenhouse gas basically traps in the solar radiation from the sun. It bounces off the earth. It hits the, the, the greenhouse effect of our atmosphere. And it keeps that heat in so that we don't freeze. And all the heat escapes and our planet just freezes over. So we need a greenhouse effect. And we need all those greenhouse gases. CO2 is only three one-hundredths of one percent of the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Three one-hundredths of one percent of the greenhouse gases. And of that three one-hundredths percent of carbon dioxide, 97% of it is produced by natural processes. Volcanoes, fires, and man only produces 3% of that three one-hundredths of one percent of CO2. We are not destroying our universe. We are not destroying our earth. The global warming hype that is continually being thrown out at us, scaring us to death, is designed to do just that. It's to scare us that we're destroying our environment, we're destroying our earth. So government to the rescue. And that's their design. It's not true. I, there's a lot of scientific evidence that contradicts this, and yet you don't hear about that in the news. It's all that we're killing ourselves and we're to blame. In fact, if you take the last 15 years, if you, if you look at the global warming of the earth from satellite imagery, which is more accurate than taking land-based measurements, you find there's been no global warming. Or if anything, a little bit of global cooling over the last 15 years. Now, how is that going to happen if global warming is a fact. So, and then you look at uh, the UNIPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and you realize that there's a, there's a dead mouse in the bottle. 
because back in 2009, a whistleblower, you remember this, uh, made available on the internet a collection of email exchanges from the leaders of this United Nations government organization saying that they had basically withheld data from independent scholars. They've prevented peer-reviewed journals that undermined or questioned their work. They buried it over. They covered it over. And basically, uh, they, uh, they presented their views and they distorted the evidence to make it look like that mankind was the cause of global warming. That was in 2009. That erupted in the whole climate gate issue that was on the news. And then later in 2011, there was another big batch of emails that came out that made it quite clear that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, basically their reports were distortions and dishonest. And then you can go on the website and go to Global Warming, the Petition Project, and you'll find that there are over 31,000 American scientists, over 9,000 with PhDs, that refute the catastrophic danger of global warming. 31,000 scientists, over 9,000 have PhDs, and what they say is, if I can read it, we urge the United States government to reject the global warming agreement that was written in Kyoto, Japan in 1997 and any other similar proposals. And they say, there is no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will in the foreseeable future cause catastrophic heating of the Earth's atmospheric atmosphere and disruption of the Earth's climate. Moreover, there is scientific, substantial scientific evidence that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide produce many beneficial effects upon the natural plant and animal environments of the earth. 31,000, 9,000 of them with PhDs say don't, don't believe the global warming hoax. In fact, if you want to look at the optimal level of CO2 in our, in our air for plant viability, it should be four times greater than what it is. If the carbon dioxide increased four times, plants would, would erupt in lush green, crops would grow. It would be an amazing boon to all agriculture if there's more CO2. The amount of warming that that would cause would be minuscule. So again, a lot of this is uh, hype to scare us, to give more control to the government. And that's why you find it always talked about and they always claim there's, there's absolute total uh, scientific agreement on these things. No, not at all. Again, Lenin said a lie told often enough becomes the truth. And that's what we're getting in this area. But that's socialism. That's what they want to bring about. Well, quickly, how about make the rich pay their fair share? You hear that all the time from socialists which is basically we need to redistribute the wealth. Because actually, you see, this is based on the false assumption that rich people got their wealth unjustly so they don't deserve to have it. We need to, the government needs to take it away from them and distribute it to all the poor people. So that's basically what this uh, part of socialism wants to accomplish. Uh, rich people deserve to pay more taxes. They do not deserve to have all the money that they've made because they all got it by fraud 
But that simply is not true. You know, the owners of Walmart and Microsoft and Apple and Trader Joe's and all these other companies, how did they make all their money? They made a product that we wanted at a price that was reasonable to us and we freely chose to go and buy their product because it added value to our life. Where was I being frauded? Where was I being cheated? It, see, the, the argument is that they're unjust. Capitalism produces unjust. Well, no doubt some capitalists are evil and wicked and some rich people are unjust and evil. So, so with the middle class and so with the poor, you find evil all through human nature. But to say that the rich people are to blame and they don't deserve what they have and it ought to be taken away from them by the government is simply unbiblical. The Bible says you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother. So don't pervert justice to the poor. Treat them justly. Treat them fairly. It goes on to say in 23 verse 3, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his dispute. In other words, don't show the poor man partiality either. Don't favor him over the claims of a rich man. No, it's justice. It's equity. Everybody gets treated fairly in the eyes of the law. That's the way it should be. That's what the Bible teaches. Proverbs says it's not good to find a righteous. That, that would be unjustly fine a righteous. Nor strike the noble for their uprightness. Punish the nobleman for his uprightness. That's wrong. Don't do that. And yet that's exactly what socialism wants to take place. Now the Bible says, for example, today we see that in the progressive income tax. By the way, that's another plank of the Communist Manifesto that was brought in, I think, in 1914 in our own country. The progressive income tax. That is, the more you make, the higher percentage of taxes you need to pay. That's the system we live under right now. It's not a biblical system. It's not a fair system. For example, when the Bible talks about tithing, how much is a tithe? Ten percent. And everybody is to pay the same amount. So the poor people, when they bring their tithe, is to be ten percent. The rich people, when they bring their tithe, is to be ten percent. It's not that the poor people, you bring a ten percent tithe, but you rich people, you don't deserve all that money that you got, so you bring a 30% tithe or a 50% tithe. It's not that way. That's, that's unjust. No, it, we need equity in carrying out the law. Everybody gets treated the same. That's what God commands in Scripture. So even when it comes to paying a census tax, everybody pays a half shekel. For example, they don't put you on the way on the scales and say, "Well, you weigh this much, you pay a half shekel," and put someone else on the scale. Wow, you weigh, you pay three shekels. You know, they don't measure it based upon any other feature like that, wealth or whatever it might be. Everybody pays the same. That's equity. That's what God endorses, but not what socialists want. They want the rich to pay more, and it's amazing. That uh, when you look at this, the top 1% under our current system, the top 1% of wage earners paid 37% of income taxes in 2016. This is more than the bottom 90% combined, which was only 30%. Is that fair? Well, if you violate the 10th commandment and you covet 
and you are envious of the rich, and you look down upon them, then it may be fair in your eyes, but it's not fair in God's eyes. Because God wants equity. The top 50% of taxpayers pay 97% of the total income taxes. The bottom 50% of taxpayers in America only pay 3%. That's our current system. But you know, it's all you tax the rich. They don't deserve it. They got it by fraud. We need to take it from them and redistribute it to everybody else. That's stealing and that's not biblical. Well, quickly move on. Globalists, socialists are globalists. We read in Genesis chapter 11 what God thought of globalism in the Tower of Babel when all the people came together because they spoke the same language. So they started building a great city and a big tower. Why do they want to build that big Tower of Babel? So they could make a name for themselves and build a tower that reached up into the heavens. It was self-worship. It was idolatry. And so God scrambled their languages to break it up because globalism and all the races coming together and all the different types of people coming together forming one world government is never good because of the sin nature, the depravity of man. And so consequently, uh, God does not endorse that. He breaks it up. But sadly, the United Nations today is the embodiment of the Tower of Babel. It's trying to unite all the nations together, supposedly to keep the peace but it's to implement a globalist agenda of controlling the people around the world. And Agenda 21 and many other things. For example, the United Nations also is paganism. Don't ever think you're going to get a... Christians are going to get a fair shake from uh, the United Nations. They are actively promoting paganism, a pagan religion, the mother of, of uh, the, the worship of Mother Earth. So they've uh, endorsed uh, Mother Earth Day on April the 22nd which, by the way, is Lenin's birthday. Hmm. They also wrote an Earth Charter. And in the Earth Charter, you have some leading humanistic socialists that came together and they wrote a document that they call the Earth Charter. And basically, uh, you have guys like uh, Rockefeller and Maurice Strong and even Mikhail Gorbachev after he left the... Soviet Union is involved in this. And the Earth Charter was inscribed on a piece of papyrus paper enshrined in a wooden box called the Ark of Hope. Now tell me if this looks familiar. That's the Jewish Ark of the Covenant, which they have usurped. And on the outside of this particular box, it's decorated with all these neo-pagan, politically correct artwork And inside of it is the earth charter, which basically is the worship of Gaia, the worship of Mother Earth. And this thing is carted around the globe and brought into different different, uh, United Nations meetings to hold religious services to the worship of Mother Earth. And here's just a picture of one of those meetings where uh, they put this ark this covenant, this Ark of Hope with this earth charter on the inside. And by the way, the poles are supposedly made out of unicorn horns which ward off evil spirits. And I'm not making this up. So this is globalism. It's, it's, it hates Christianity. It will steal away our religious liberties whenever it can. And it's doing that. The Treaty of the Rights of the Child is a direct attack on the rights of parents to raise their children. 
You have the SALT Treaty where the, where the UN is trying to get all the nations to control the water supply and, and environmentalism. It's just all through there to control us and give more authority and control to the government. Well, how about the LGBTQ rights? Well, socialism is very much committed to promoting these things as well. Uh, they are not friendly to biblical values at all. Now, what does the Bible say? Again, we're all familiar with this. The homosexual lifestyle is described as a detestable act. It's blood guiltiness. It's degrading passions. It's unnatural. It's indecent acts. That the effeminate or the homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the glorious thing Paul says in this last passage is such were some of you. Now, homosexuals and people in the gay say, well, I can't change. That's the way I was born. That, that's a lie. There's no such thing as a gay gene. You can be changed by the power of God. And you need to come to Christ and you need to repent of your sins and receive the free gift of washing and forgiveness so that you can live the life that God created you to live. So there's great hope in the Gospel we don't hate homosexuals. I, I feel for them because they're believing a lie that our culture is drumming into their minds. Just, just think for a, sec, for a second about the homosexual lifestyle being a perversion of God's creation norm for sex and marriage. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, the very first commandment He gave them, which we call the creation mandate, is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now just think for a moment about this as a homosexual. Can you do that? If you are committed and faithfully involved in a homosexual lifestyle, can you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Can you have children? You cannot. And you would think that on a very logical level, people would see that the homosexual lifestyle is unnatural. It cannot fulfill the most basic, simple requirement of the human race, and that is to have children, to reproduce, and to fill the earth. They cannot do that. It's impossible for them to do that biologically. And the sad thing about it is, I think in, in, in much of this, is that uh, this whole lifestyle uh, movement that is uh, so prominent and so powerful today is just based on something that is is not only a distortion, it's unnatural and it just simply cannot uh, sustain itself. It's unsustainable. Why? Because a, a male cannot grow a uterus and a female cannot produce a male seed there's no way for a homosexual partners to reproduce unless they go to God's way of reproduction, right? It's unnatural. It ought to be logical that something is wrong with this lifestyle because we cannot propagate our race. Now, if animals were all gay, they would all go extinct, right? So logically, I appeal to those who are being tempted with homosexuality, just think about it. Don't you see how unlogical, unnatural it is? How it, it doesn't fit with what we are created to be and do. 
And you would think if, if someone is, uh, is able to see that, it would help them come out of that particular lifestyle. The homosexual lifestyle is a biological dead end. It's unsustainable. It's wrong. And I think for those who are gays, it's, it's a call for them to honestly evaluate the lifestyle and see how it, it is a distortion of what God has ordained to be pleasing and right in His sight. And encourage them to, to come back to God, come back to the Scriptures, and find the blessing and the joy and the fulfillment that only God can give when we live our lives according to His creation norms. The same thing with all the, the gender identity confusion that's going on today. It's also a distortion of God's creation norm of gender. Remember in Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So when you're born, you are born either a male or a female. Biologically, it's in your body. You cannot deny it because the faculties are there. You're either a male or you're a female. And all of the confusion that's going on now with the gender identity issues that are facing our young people and other people as well is that they want to reject God's norm. They want to reject biologically who they are and based on their own feelings and emotions claim that they can be the opposite gender. So that now you are not worshiping God. You have become your own God. You have the ability now to determine your gender. Regardless of biologically what you've been made, you have the power in your mind to determine your gender. And I would only say, how cruel is that kind of a God if they worship a God or if they don't? How cruel is nature if you're an atheist? That He would put a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body. How cruel, how sadistic, how deceptive is nature to do that if in fact that's what they claim is taking place. It's crazy. It's contrary to God's clear roles of gender that He assigned at conception. You're either a man and you're, or you're a woman and God determines that. And it's when these people, and I feel for these young people, you know, the transvestites and all this, I feel for those people because they're so confused. And instead of submitting to how God clearly biologically made them, they're so confused in their minds that they want to be the opposite gender. And they go to great extent to try to act that out and to change themselves. And their life will end in ruin and frustration. And it's a call again to young people that are struggling with this to come back to the clarity of Scripture and of God's design. He made you a male or a woman. Accept that. And there you will find your greatest fulfillment and blessings in life. Not trying to be something that you are not. Because if you're that, you're going to end up living a lie for the rest of your life. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. So don't follow that path. Come back to how God made you and 
Though you may struggle with it, continue to renew your mind in God's truth and let His truth set you free. There's also, of course, uh, what the socialists promote is abortion. This is almost kind of like a slam dunk in their mind. Because after all, every, every woman has the right to her body, right? We hear that all the time. How about the baby? Does the baby have a right to its body? See, you never hear about that. It's always, I've got the right to my body. I'm a woman. Let the woman growl or whatever it is. But I've got a right to my body and no one has a right to tell me to use it in any other way. What about the baby's right? What about that little body? Who has the right to kill that body? Does a mother have the right? It's not her body. This is a separate human being within her womb. And it is a human being. It's not a monkey that a pregnant woman has inside of her. It's not a parakeet. It's a human. And the only way they can get around that is say, well, it may be human, but it's not a person yet. It's not a person until it's born. But even in New York, they're already legislating infanticide, killing a baby after it's born. Where is the justice in that? Where is the fairness, the rights of that little baby? If you're going to kill that baby in the womb, God says you shall not murder. And Psalm 139 verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. If God's hands are in that womb, making and fashioning that little baby, then the man's of hands, the, the hands of man need to stay out of that womb, right? Because God's hands are in there. Don't let man hands come in and kill it and destroy it. So all of this is socialism. It's all contrary to Scripture. It's all anti-Christian. It's all attack against our Christian liberties, our religious liberties, our economic abilities to live a peaceful and tranquil life, doing the kind of work we want to do, pursuing the goals we want to go, live where we want to live, whatever it is, the Bible and God endorses human freedom in, the, in these regards. And whenever government comes in and wants to control all of that, then it's counter-Scripture. It's contrary to the Word of God and should be opposed. Not only is it contrary to the Word of God, big government, socialism, communism is contrary to the principles of our founding fathers. And James Madison, author of Federalist Number 45, said it clearly that our country, our nation, is not founded on a great big federal government that controls and owns everything. He says the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. And you read the Constitution, they are very limited in what the power of the federal government should be. But those that are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. In other words, a state government, federalism, has a majority of the power, but that whole system has now been turned totally upside down. The federal government now has the vast majority of the power and it's growing by leaps and bounds every day. So in conclusion, Dr. Lee Edwards on uh, the heritage.org site on the internet had an article, What Americans Must Know About Socialism said, this is the reality of socialism. A pseudo-religion 
grounded in pseudoscience and enforced by political tyranny. This is the case against socialism. A God that failed. A science that never was. And a political system headed for the ash heap of history. It will never work. And yet it's continually being presented as the savior of America's problems. So what should we do? Let us bring our entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and for our kings, our governors, our judges, our legislators, the president, all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Let us pray for our leaders because only God can right the ship once it starts to sink. And let us as citizens and Christians be informed on the issues and vote and never vote for a socialist. One of the freedoms that we still have today, thank God, is the freedom to baptize people openly in church. That's my segue into uh, baptism. We don't have to crawl off someplace and find some secluded little river and go out there to baptize someone who makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. No, we can do it openly and we can do it publicly. And we do thank God for that. So we're going to sing a sweet hour of prayer, hymn number 634. And uh, Jacob can come up and sit on the front row and we'll get ready to, uh, to have his baptism in just a moment. Uh, before we do a baptism service, we always like to uh, remind everyone the importance and significance of Christian baptism. It's one of the two church ordinances that uh, we practice, that and with the uh, Lord's Supper. Um, baptism is always viewed as an initiatory ordinance, which outwardly introduces a believer into the outward worshiping body of Christ. Uh, it's kind of the front door in terms of outward public Christian identity. Uh, we believe that baptism is to be only for those who make a credible profession of faith. So we do not baptize infants. And we also like to remind you that this is not a work that is needed in order to earn or merit salvation. Uh, salvation is a free gift, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works, so that no one can boast. So it's a, it's not a work, but it is a commandment of Christ that for every believer that wants to follow Christ, they should be baptized. Again, not in order for them to complete their salvation, but as a mark of obedience and also identity with Jesus Christ. As we perform baptism, we believe in immersion because I think that's what, uh, how they practiced it in the first century. And there's two great symbols uh, that come with uh, uh, being immersed in water. One of them, of course, is the idea of a complete cleansing. Now, the water that we use here is good Oklahoma City utility water. Uh, there's no uh, mystical, supernatural powers in the water. It's water. But it's a symbol 
that when he goes under the water, that it symbolizes in outward form this precious cleansing gift that the blood of Christ has washed away all of our sins. From the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. So that's a beautiful picture that you see in immersion. Not, you don't get that in sprinkling or effusion, uh, but you do get it in immersion. And also, the second main picture is that Jacob will be identifying himself with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the waters kind of represent the grave. And so he will go down into the waters as if he's buried, and then he comes up out of the water as if in newness of life. And that, that really describes for us what Jesus did on the cross. Because he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, but who is he representing? He was specifically our substitute. He was doing that for us. So that in effect, we died, we were buried, and we rose again in Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior. So it's a beautiful picture where we are now identifying in His death, burial, and resurrection. In effect, saying He did that for me. He represented me when He died and was buried and rose again. So it's a dual picture that we have that's really quite precious and makes this such a meaningful ordinance of the church. And now, Lord, may You turn the hearts of our leaders away from their sinful plans to honor the principles of Your Word that we as Your church might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. To Your honor and glory we ask it. Amen.